Welcome. Hello. My name is Ali A. Alomi. This podcast is called Head on History. If you don't know why you're tuning in, then welcome. This is a history podcast run by yours truly. This podcast is brought to you by audibletrial.com slash headonhistory, audible.com. Uh, check it out. If you are interested, you can get a free audiobook and support this podcast. Today, I kind of want to talk to you about Islam and China. Now, I had been planning on this episode for a while now as, as I was kind of um, marking out uh, the trajectory of season three, I knew that I wanted to cover first go into the Persianate world, really do Islam and Afghanistan, mostly because I had just come back from a convention uh, or a conference where I had presented on Afghanistan and there was a lot of interest on it. So I wanted to really cover Afghanistan and the Persianate world. Then I knew that I was going to move uh, eastward and go into, uh, I'm sorry, move westward and move into the Maghreb and Al-Andalus. And then after I moved westward, I was going to move to the east by covering Southeast Asia and then making my way all the way around to China. So I had this kind of, in my mind, I was doing a sort of Ibn Battuta, you know, traveling the Muslim world. Um, but this podcast uh, really is is also kind of being, um, I think, influenced by contemporary events as well. So while I was very interested in doing a podcast on the history of Islam and China, I, at the same time, there was this this series of things going on in China related to Islam. So I think this podcast has become even more important. And so I'm going to, de- even though this was kind of designed to be a regular podcast, I'm going to label this as a head-on history special uh, because I think it is important. I just want to kind of signal boost it a little bit because of what's kind of going on. Uh, for those that aren't don't follow kind of international news, Xinjiang, uh, this kind of province in, in China, uh, where made up of predominantly 12 million Muslims, uh, ethnically we and Kazakhs is really under a police state at this point in time. Now, people don't often think of Islam in China. They don't. But there are 12 million Muslims that live in China and, and more. There are, I mean, that's a really kind of uh, conservative estimate. China is one of the most popular um Muslim countries, if you will, you know, we often talk about kind of Islam and the Middle East, but reality is Islam in Southeast Asia, it's really Indonesia, Malaysia, Islam in South Asia, Pakistan and India, and Islam in China. These are the kind of big populous Muslim countries, and then followed up with the Persian world, North Africa, and then the Middle East. So what's happening in, in Xinjiang is that there, this is a police state as part of a sort of series of crackdowns taken on by the Communist Party, the, the one-party rule in China. They have been targeting religious minorities and ethnic minorities. The two intersect with one another, particularly because there is this uh, anxiety about about extremism and uh, separatist politics. There's this belief that this these group of people uh, inherently breed extremism, or that they are uh, inclined towards separatist policies. You know. The, China's relationship with Tibet, China's relationship with the various kind of autonomous provinces, it's always kind of called into question. And what's happened is that over a series of years, they have really cracked down on the Muslims of China by first banning beards, uh, banning Islamic names, even banning long skirts, right? So and we often talk about the policing of women's bodies done usually by conservative Muslims. That is the enforcing of things like the head veil, the hijab, the chador, or the burqa. 
uh, or even the the niqab. What we don't often talk about is the kind of policing of uh, women's bodies by secular states, right? That is the policing of religious women's and devout women's bodies. And so even long skirts have been banned. Um, And even kind of restrictions on Muslims who were trying to make pilgrimage. There was a very famous video that went viral this past year, actually, that showed uh, Chinese Muslims, uh, Uyghur Muslims, who had made uh, Hajj. They had made the pilgrimage to Hajj. And they were on their last day, they came to say goodbye to the Kaaba. And they were weeping because it would be the last time they would ever see the Kaaba. And so they refused to turn their back on the Kaaba, that is the the, the heart of Mecca. And they walked backwards as they uh, uh, sang songs of goodbye and prayers of goodbye to the Kaaba. And they blew kisses and waved at it uh, and cried and mourned and lamented the fact that this was not only a one-in-a-lifetime event, they would never see the Kaaba again. So it was a very kind of emotional, moving video. And it really is part of this kind of broader international uh, crisis that's going on. The Chinese government's own um, reporting on this really tells us the kind of story. The Muslim population makes up less about 1-2% to of the population in China, and yet they account for 20% of the arrests. That's huge. That is a massive population. Um, and not just arrests. There's inst- instances of, of, of disappearing people and whatnot. And so the UN has, has really called this a humanitarian crisis. They have, there's been calls for this. A lot of very famous chi- uh, scholars on China have spoken up, uh, experts on China, experts on China and Islam. So there's this kind of context going on. And I think this is where history offers us a really important corrective. History is a way of pushing back against these sort of official narratives. So right now, the narrative is really that the Muslimness in China is foreign. That Muslimness is uh, subversive to, to Chinese identity, to Chinese politics. That it is rooted in separatism. But the reality is that there is a long history of a relationship between China and Islam. And while certainly Islam arrives in China, Um, as an outsider, it becomes localized, just as it did in Southeast Asia. And so that's the history that I want to present to you today. The relationship between China and Islam actually begins before Islam. There's a long history of relations between China and the merchants from the Arabian Peninsula. Now, I use the merchants from the Arabian Peninsula because saying Arab is actually a little bit misleading. Arab as a sort of cohesive ethnic identity is something that really kind of gets invented a little bit later. Later, uh, more towards the 9th and 10th century. So the people who inhabit uh, the Arabian Peninsula, I want to be very cautious of of not projecting back kind of ethnic identities on the pre-modern world, which was way more complicated anyways. Um, Anyways, the the relationship is really a product of this thing that we call the Silk Road. And it's not really a road, as any historian of the Silk Road or trade or of of late antiquity and, and the medieval world can really tell you that there is no Silk Road. The Silk Road is a conception that we historians apply to the trade that's going on in that region because we see goods flow from China 
all over the place. It's actually a silk roads. It's a series of roads. And it also isn't uh, goods traveling from China ending up in Western Europe. That's a really Eurocentric way of looking at trade. The reality is the silk road trade happens locally. That They're happening in places like Central Asia, Southwest Asia. They're happening in places like the, the steppes. And this also includes maritime trade. That it's not just overland travel, but also maritime trade which includes seaports. And so as a result of this, Chinese merchants and merchants from Arabia frequented these roads, interacted with one another, allowed goods to flow between the two regions, but also allowed ideas to flow along those regions. And so we have a Chinese goods showing up in the Arabian Peninsula. We have Arab merchants showing up in China. The port of Aksum in particular, or Adulis, is really important in the Red Sea, and that connects Mecca to the maritime trade in the Indian Ocean. When those Arabian merchants who are in the Silk Road and making their way all the way to China convert to Islam, they take their faith with them. In other words, like many of the kind of topics that we've covered in, in this season, Islam came via merchants. And the first Muslim that is associated with bringing Islam to uh, China is Said ibn Abi Waqqas. And he is a Sahaba that is a companion of Muhammad. And he's an early convert to, Muslim, to Islam. In fact, it's believed that he likely converted when he was 17 years old. Um, a funny story about Said ibn Abi Waqqas is his mom was really against him converting to Islam. So just like uh, moms are when you're in your teens, you know, she came and she's like, it's a phase, right? Everyone who has ever seen kid, they've heard that from their parents, right? You listen to, to Panic at the Disco, you dye your hair, you wear eyeliner, and your parents tell you that it's a phase. Surprise, you're 30 years old and you still dye your hair and you have eyeliner on. So it wasn't a phase. Or maybe it was a phase. Who knows? But anyways, his mom comes to him and goes, look, it's a phase. How dare you leave the religion of your ancestors, of your parents, of your great-grandparents, and convert to this weird-ass religion and follow this dude named Muhammad. You need to stop this right now. And Saeed goes, you know what? I can't. I love you, mom, but I've, I feel this is the religion religion for me. And she goes, if you don't convert back, if you don't stop doing your crazy stuff, I refuse to eat or drink. I'm going to let myself perish and die. And then you are going to feel guilty and horrible because you killed your mother. So talk about the mother of all guilt trips. And so he goes, look, mom, I love you, but I'm not going to do it. And she ends up actually going on a hunger strike against her son. And it lasts several days. And over those several days, he shows up and he's like, no, mom, let me, let me get you some food. Let me buy you a shawarma. Let me buy you a shawarma. You'll be fine. Once you get some food in your belly, this will all pass. But uh, she doesn't. Uh, but eventually, over several days, she, she does relent. And she finally very begrudgingly takes food and accepts that her son has converted. Anyway, Said ibn Abi Waqqas is one of the, you know, one of those early figures in Islam, but also a very widespread traveler. He goes all over the place. He's involved in a series of battles in the Arabian Peninsula. He's involved in the Battle of Badr, in the Battle of Uhud. He's appointed governor at, point, at one point in Basra. He's uh, involved in the uh, early campaigns of, of, of the Muslims in the Persianate world. Uh, he really goes up against the Sasanian Empire. He's the one that really, one of the early ones that enter into to South Asia and Central Asia. Or, you know, today would be Afghanistan and all the way up into uh, Bukhara. 
But he was also one of the first to travel to China as a Muslim. Um, there are beliefs that he likely went to China around the 620 CE. There's no real evidence for this. We don't see a lot of history there that says, oh yeah, 620 CE, he went there. But we do know that at least by 651, he, he was sent as an emissary of Uthman, the third Rashidun Khalif, as an emissary to China. Now, did he himself go or was he in charge of the, the campaign and he sent representatives? It's not clear. But the story of Chinese Muslims often accredit Sayyid ibn Abi Waqqas as being the kind of forefather of Chinese Islam or Islam in China. At the time when Uthman sends his emissary in 651, the emperor is Emperor Gaozong of the Tang dynasty. And he was very warmly accepted into uh, the Tang court. Not only was he accepted, but they actually built the Haosheng Mosque. Now, I'm not a native uh, speaker of any of the Chinese languages or dialects, so I'm going to butcher all sorts of names today. I apologize in advance to all the scholars of China and everyone who speaks uh, various Chinese languages in advance. My languages are Arabic, Persian, Greek, Latin. I'm good there. Um, when we go elsewhere... I'm a bit of a mess, so I will do my best. Um, but if there, if I'm mispronouncing things, I, I beg your indulgence. So uh, they build the the Haosheng Mosque. Uh, the Haosheng Mosque is a very unique mosque in the ancient world. It actually has a, a, a minaret that is shaped a little bit like a like a lighthouse. Um, and it, what's fascinating is that it w if this is accurately was built around the 650s by um, uh, Saeed ibn Abi Waqqas showing up in China and the Tang Emperor accepting him, this would actually make it one of the oldest mosques in the world. We're talking about a mosque all the way in China competing with the mosques in Damascus. So after Mecca and Medina, which are obviously the first kind of mosques, we would then look at Damascus as the next mosque, followed by the Haosheng Mosque in China. That tells you something. It tells you about how early Islam arrived in the region. It also tells you of how the relationship was with Islam. The Tang were very receptive to the Muslim world, and they were very receptive to Muslim merchants. Part of the reason that they were so receptive was that the Tang were a very cosmopolitan dynasty. Indeed, like many of the empires of late antiquity, the Byzantines, the Sasanians, the Muslims, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and, and the Tang, they were they were very open to trade. These were dynasties and empires that may have fought territorial wars on their frontiers, but they still allowed goods and people to flow through their empires. We often find that this is the case with most successful empires, is that they do allow a movement of people and a movement of goods. They're more dynamic with their borders than nation states are uh, today. And this receptive trade really was a result of the fact that the Silk Road allowed so much to flow. So for example, we find that silk and porcelain made its way all the way in Arabia in Yathrib and, and definitely in the Sana'a, very much in, in Himyar and in Mecca, we find silk and porcelain. But similarly, things flow in the other direction. For example, uh, stools and chairs, which were not common in, in China during this time, and instead people sat on mats. Stools and chairs came from Central Asia into, into China. And we know that for a long time that there was connections not just from Arabia, but much closer to China. 
China. That is the Persian at World Central, Transoxania, if you will, so from, from the region of what would today be uh, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. We have, for example, uh, Chinese documents and even Chinese uh, burial areas that mention Sogdians, and Sogdians being these very famous traders that would merchants that would come out of the, the Central Asia and trade with them. In fact, there's this very famous document that refers to the Sogdian tr uh, merchant, and they're like, oh, the Sogdians are very shrewd merchants. They always they always haggle over the prices. So anyone who, who's ever been to a Persian country who knows how the truth of that story, the Sogdians were Persian people, right? So here we have the uh, if you the kind of forefather of the Persian car salesman, the, the archetype, right, or the stereotype in in this Chinese document. And the Chinese document refers to them as the Dashi. Which refers both, which is actually the comes from a, the uh, an, uh, the Persian word for uh, the Arabs, but it also refers to the Persians and it refers to the Arabs. And early Muslims were called the Dashi or the Daishifu, the, the the law of the Arabs or the law of those people. And the reason for this is that likely the mosque was used by visitors and dignitaries. We don't have a lot of evidence of a massive population of converts right off the bat. Like many places where Islam traveled. Conversion was a gradual process. It took time, several centuries, but there was still a sizable population of people who lived there. Under the Abbasid dynasty, which starts really in the 750s or so after the Umayyads collapse, relations with the Tang really took off. So not, you have this early establishment that goes right up in, in the Rashidun Caliphate, right in the beginnings of the Islam. And then the relationship is formalized with the establishment of the kind of long, longest lasting, largest uh, Islam. Islamic dynasty, uh, that, that is the Abbasids. Um, and there was some conflict early on, and so we should note those conflicts, but overall the relationship was positive. For example, they, they vied over the control of Siar Darya in Central Asia in 751. The Tang were eventually defeated in that conflict, and they ceded control of Central Asia to the Muslims. So Central Asia, Transoxania, that goes all under Abbasid control from that from then on. It also kind of checked the, the, the uh, westward movement of the Tang Empire. But despite the, that kind of territorial conflict, overall the relationship was possible. In fact, in 755, when General An Lushan led a rebellion against the Tan, the Abbasids and the Tang, Tang actually ended up um, collaborating militarily. So General An, An Lushan establishes himself as a sort of rival emperor, and the Abbasids end up sending military aid to Emperor Su Tsung against An Lushan. So this is them creating the Abbasids and the Tang dynasty under Emperor Su Tsung really developing a formal tie between these two dynasties. They end up defeating An Lushan, and the positive relationships uh, really grows from there. Um, the, the Muslim migra migrants that lived in uh, this region of this point, and they were, a lot of them were migrants at this particular time, were not considered a threat to the empire in any way, shape, or form. And because they were a minority, and the Tang had such a positive relationship with the opposites, the Tang dynasty, Dynasty absorbed the Muslims into society without much difficulty. In fact, in 845, when uh, the Tang uh, announced their sort of anti-Buddhism edict under Emperor Wu Zong, the Muslims remained unscathed. Under Emperor Wu Zong, the Tang purged all kind of foreign religions, or what was deemed so-called foreign, and these are the kind of the three religions of the Silk Road: the Manichaeans, which were uh, a sort of a dualism. 
uh, tradition that emerged under Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, which came from South Asia, uh, and Nestorian Christianity. Buddhism is really the first uh, kind of universal religion of world history, a kind of first uh, religion, evangel evangelist religion, meaning that it converted people followed shortly by uh, Christianity and Manichaeism, and then Islam being the, the fourth. But Nestorian Christians, Buddhists, Manichaeists, all were, were purged, persecuted, and targeted under uh, Emperor Wu Zong. But we don't have any evidence of Muslims being targeted. Now, that is not to say that this community never faced persecution. There were, there were instances of local violence and, and whatnot, but overwhelmingly, they were incorporated into society. And the kind of the long arc of the history of Islam in China means that it was uh, one of collaboration and, and accommodation and absorption. Islam was localized through those merchants. Uh, they dominated foreign trade. Uh, they settled in China. And through the years, they interacted interacted with local communities, and that's how it spread. Merchants would move from places like the Persian world in, in Central Asia into China. They would settle there. Then they would interact with local merchants. Local merchants would then convert to Islam, and it's how Islam became Chinese. And that's important to understand, that, that it did become Chinese, that it was localized. This is an important fact of history. Muslims weren't just Arabs and Persians in China. They were the Chinese themselves. In fact, in, in 1070, uh, uh, Shen Sung, the emperor, invites 5,300 Muslims from the Persian world, specifically Sogdians from Bukhara. And they're led by a guy named Amir Sayyid, and they migrate from Bukhara to China. When they arrive there, they end up intermarrying with people. They end up bringing their own texts with them. The texts are translated into Chinese. So we have Arab medical texts, Arab philosophical texts, Arab and Persian poetry being translated into Chinese. Now the reason Bukhara is the place where, where they invite this, and the reason why Shen Sung does that, is that in the ninth, from the 9th to about the 11th century, 10th and 11th century, Bukhara becomes the cultural capital of the world. Now, I talked about this when I talked about Islam in the Persian world in season one, and definitely talked about it when I talked about Islam in Afghanistan in this past season. Bukhara ends up becoming the cultural rival of Baghdad, and it becomes a center of Persian learning in particular. It's actually in Bukhara that the Quran is translated by Muhammad, um, uh, Muhammad al-Balami, translated from Arabic into Persian. And Balami also goes on to translate Muhammad uh, Jarir al-Tabari's uh, Tariq al-Rasul wal-Mulk, the, the, the history of prophets and kings, the kind of compendium chronicle uh, of, of the Muslim world to translate it into Persian. So there's this kind of Persianate renaissance that's going that really isn't just a um, re-emergence of old Persian identity, but a restructuring of Persian identity that incorporates Islam um, in the 10th century, and it's centered in Bukhara. So Bukhara becomes a major center for intellectual learning, but also a major center of trade. It's one of the hubs of the Silk Road. So when Emperor Shen Tsung was looking to build strong relationships with outside, he was building really looking for economic benefit and also for connect, social connections, social and cultural connections, right? For bringing in the kind of cultural flourishing that was going on, he looked to Bukhara, which is why he invited those 5,300 migrants to come and live in China. And when they did move there, they ended up localizing. They became locals and the locals converted to Islam. And is how Islam, right off the bat, from a, from a period of the, the 7th century all the way up, 
the 8th century all the way up to the 10th century and 11th century, was interacting with China. And though they remained a small minority, it's a clear indication that Islam is as much Chinese as Buddhism is, that it has been in China for as long as many of these other religions have been there. And though it was a small community, that long process started quite early on. And that process was not one of conflict and tension and othering, but rather of localization and assimilation and accommodation, that these communities became Chinese and that there was nothing you know untoward of, of Chinese Islam of Chinese you know worshipping as Muslims did in fact being Muslim and Chinese was not seen as contradictory but perfectly compatible with one another from this moment on from uh, the early moments of while well, the early kind of connections with Islam the community remained relatively small and uh, didn't really particularly grow from there. There was from the importation from Bukhara, it grew a little bit. But from that moment, from the from the 10th century on, for a process of about 300 years, Islam was localized. And we find, for example, that under the Mongol dynasties, that is the, the Yuan dynasty, if I'm not mistaken, they imported Muslim administrators um, uh, while they actually exported Han Chinese. And so what ended up happening is that they would they would appoint Han Chinese administrators over Muslim populations. So they would have a Chinese administrator in in Bukhara, but they would have a Muslim administrator in their other provinces. And they did this because, and it's, this didn't do this just with Islam. They actually elevated a lot of the kind of foreign religions, Buddhism as well as as uh, Nestorian Christianity. The Mongols were kind of open in that regards. Now Genghis Khan himself originally didn't favor the Muslims going so far as to view them as kind of slaves or unworthy. But afterwards, the Yuan dynasty, while they didn't convert to Islam in the same way that the Ilkhanid and the Khans in the, in the Western uh, world did, you know, under uh, after Hulagu Khan destroys Baghdad, the, the Mongols convert to Islam, the Yuan don't convert, but they do elevate the Muslim population. So we have, for example, uh, Iranian historian Haman, Hamadani tells us that out of 12 provinces, eight of them were run by Muslims. And it's under this in this particular time period, from the Yuan to the Ming, that Islam undergoes its largest period or longest period of being localized or Sinized, uh, made into Chinese. It's also a period of cultural flourishing. Uh, for example, uh, the Nanjing ends up becoming the center of Islamic learning in the Chinese world. And in particular, astronomy, Muslim and Persian astronomy, takes off in Nanjing. We even have instances of translation, just beautiful works of translation. For example, Ibn Sina's Canon of Medicine is translated into Hu Hu Wao Fang. I think I pronounced that right. Hu Hu Wao Fang. I probably mispronounced it. <laughs> but it was translated. So we find Ibn Sina's work, known in the West as Avicenna, his medicine text translated into Arabic. We have records of hajjahs being made, Chinese, Muslims, immigrating all the way over to um, uh, the to, to Mecca, making the hajj pilgrimage and then making their way back. These con pilgrimage connections uh, show us how Islam continued to flow into China, but also how the Chinese community how the Muslim community became Chinese, it became localized. And we, of course, uh, quite famously, the capital of the Yuan dynasty was uh, built, or at least planned out, by Persian Muslim architect, Amir ad-Din. Amir ad-Din ends up becoming the architect for the Yuan. 
I think nowhere is is the kind of representation, cultural representation of this moment in which Islam really undergoes sinization, becomes uh, Chinese, becomes localized, this process, then found in the story of 1001 Arabian Nights. 1001 Arabian Nights includes several stories about China, indicating to us, first and foremost, that the Persian world had very strong and clear connections to China, but also showing us that Islam existed in China and was made Chinese. I think the most famous story of 1001 Arabian Nights, Aladdin. Today, we, the story of Aladdin, you know, the story told in the, the Disney special Aladdin, is associated with Agrabah, this kind of mysterious, mythic Arab city. But in reality, Aladdin actually takes place in China. This is a little-known fact, and you can tell your kids and students this, and they're often are shocked. I remember when I, when I teach world history, when I teach history of Islam, and I both of those classes, I always tell my students, when we get to the story of uh, A Thousand and One Nights, I tell them about Aladdin being in China, and they all kind of look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, wait, what? It's true. Aladdin is actually takes place in China. In fact, the sorcerer that comes to Aladdin is from the Maghreb. He's from the West. So it's it's not actually takes place in in uh, the, the Middle East, but it's actually in China, and we start to see that the uh, that the Chinese and that story I think is really indicative of the larger sociological historical process there. And by this time, by the time of the Ming Dynasty, Muslims have adopted the Muslim population is Chinese, fully Chinese. They've adopted Chinese dress, Chinese cuisine, Chinese names. Uh, for example, the, the surname Mu may likely have been uh, from Masud. We have other ones like Ma might have been from Muhammad and others. So they're, they're fully made Chinese. This is the, the, the long durée history of Islam in China. And while there are moments of, of intense, intense persecution and moments of uh, frustration and uh, interesting conflict, Overall, the long arc of Islam in China is one in which it is a religion that was warmly welcomed, that was then localized and made Chinese. That is the long history. From, from, the, from the Yuan to the Ming to the Tang, from, oh, actually starting from the Tang, all of them have a relatively positive relationship with Islam. And we can argue that Islam is fully a Chinese religion. It isn't until the contemporary or the modern moment in which those tensions really start to rise. Even in the Republic of China, we have a lot of records of migration between China and, and Mecca, specifically the Hajj pilgrimage, um, I should say. But the first kind of modern case of, of really persecution starts with the Chinese-Japanese War. Um, from the rape of Nanking on, we see the Japanese had a, a policy of burning down mosques. They're really the first to kind of in the modern era to really suppress it violently. And then with the coming of, of communist China, there's a weird kind of schizophrenic relationship with Islam. On one hand, in 2007, when it was the year of the pig, the Chinese officials went out of their way to avoid depicting pigs in order to avoid insulting Muslims. Not that, you know, pigs are somehow the kryptonite of Muslims. You know, it's not like you show up pig like, oh, I'm losing my Muslim powers. That's not, that's not how it works, right? Islamophobes also do the same thing. Oh, 
oh, throwing pigs into mosques or lining them up in pig heads in a line because somehow Muslims can't cross a barrier of pig or if something's been touched by bacon, right? Um, but, you know, there there are these tensions. It kind of reminds me of the Sepoy uh, rebellion a little bit, the, the issue of using beef grease or pork grease or whatnot. But anyways, in 2007, the Chinese government really went out of their way to try to avoid offending Muslims. And Hui Muslims, a particular uh, ethnic group of Muslims, are allowed to practice their religion without much uh, persecution or, or uh, you know, oppression. In fact, they are allowed to continue private religious education. Pro religious education is banned in China, but the Hui Muslims generally are allowed to. Yet at the same time that they kind of have this relationship of, oh, let's not offend the Muslims, let's allow the Hui to do what they want, they do persecute the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. The, 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 there's this idea under the Cultural Revolution of taming the wilderness. And taming the wilderness meant that you need to go out of your way to deal with those particular areas that were considered um, dangerous. Um, and the, the Xinjiang and the Uyghur population in particular has, has always been seen not just as ethnically different, but as also being somehow... Uh, subversive, that they are dangerous. And so what ends up happening is there's uh, re-education camps and indoctrination that's going on. There's the banning of uh, veils and the banning of, uh, you know, Muslim dress and beard and uh, making it difficult for Uyghur Muslims to go on Hajj, uh, the closing down of mosques and schools um, that are in, in the region, particularly uh, you know these kind of Sufi mosques, these Sufi preachers, shutting them down and oppressing them, not allowing the, the Ramadan fast to take place, and even going so far as to uh, placing state officials in people's homes. These, under the kind of the guise of, of, of hospitality, they are forced to invite state officials into their homes, feed them, give them home, give them quarters. I mean, this is like the Quarters Act of the United States, of the colonial America. And then they take these kind of weird, dystopian, Orwellian photos of smiling families with these uh, Chinese government officials sitting at their dinner table or on their dinner mats. And it's like, oh, look, we are good Chinese citizens. We are allowing the state to come in and do their weird inquisition. So there's just a lot of weird stuff going on in Xinjiang, deeply oppressive of the Uyghur uh, Muslims there, deeply oppressive of, of the population. I, you know, to be clear, I am not an expert in um, that particular region of the world. I'm not an expert in China. I'm a historian of the Middle East and North Africa and Islam, and I'm a world historian. So I teach China when I teach world history. For example, I'm teaching a class called Empires of Faith, and we talk about the Han Dynasty. We talk about the Zhao dynasty. We talk about the Song dynasty. We talk about Mandate of Heaven. We talk about Confucianism. So I do teach this stuff, but it's not my area of expertise. And it's also not, I am a commentator of Middle Eastern politics, what's going on contemporarily in the Middle East, South Asia, um, um, South uh, Central Asia, and North Africa. I don't comment a lot on Chinese politics. I am not the expert in Chinese politics. I know the rough history of communist China. I know the rough history of the Cultural Revolution and Mao. I know a little bit about that, I, um, but I, 
this is not my area of expertise um and 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 you know i i we there are stuff going on that that i'm not particularly f- aware of i know that there are kind of a chinese branch of the muslim brotherhood there are we- uyghur terrorist organizations that there's all sorts of these kind of uh, sectarian violence that exists in that region that i am not the perfect expert on but i wanted to use this podcast to kind of talk about the pre-modern history as a way of complicating that modern history taking that history in which the Uyghurs in particular because they're an ethnic minority are treated as foreign and subversive by the Chinese government and the kind of persecution of Islam uh, specifically the Islam practice by Uyghur Muslims taking that and then putting that within the context of Chinese history to see how the modern world's uh, attempts to kind of create these Puritan boundaries of what is Chinese and what is not Chinese doesn't pan out in the long durée history of the relationship between Islam and China. To take that pre-modern history as a way of, of, of correcting the narrative, of pushing back on that narrative, and really using this podcast or this episode to signal boost what is an ongoing crisis in that region and hopefully spark your interest. Maybe you'll listen to this podcast and you'll be interested in becoming a historian of China or an expert in Chinese Islam or whatnot, or that you'll do more research on it and maybe you'll get a little bit more involved in that politics because so long as we remain oblivious to it, so long as the UN is unable to get involved in that region, these persecutions continue and these problems continue. But in light of that, I do want to end this podcast with experts who I think um, are really useful uh, in understanding Islam in the region and who are really important commentators. The first of whom is Ryan Thum. Uh, If you're not following him, he's from uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. He's in the history department. He's an associate professor of history. Follow him on Twitter. He's his fantastic work. He's a good commentator on this. But also, he came to UCI and he gave a talk about the Persianate connections with um, uh, China. And just brilliant guy. This is one of those people that you, you meet and you just go, you feel so inadequate because the guy knows like a dozen different languages. I'm, I know Latin, I know Greek, and I know Arabic, and I know Persian. And I'm kind of picking up French. But this guy knows like a dozen Chinese dialects, Persian, Arabic. He's doing like, like he's doing rocket science when it comes to history. So he's absolutely brilliant. And his book, uh, The Sacred Roots of Uyghur History, is a really fantastic book. Really looks at the Uyghur history, looks at their place in China, and also understands the kind of long traditions of pilgrimage, manuscript culture. So if you're interested in what's going on with the Uyghurs, this Ryan Thum is the guy that, that to turn to. The next guy is uh, Christian Peterson. He wrote a fantastic book called Interpreting Islam in China, Pilgrimage, Scripture, and Language in the Han Kitab. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at Baba Christian. Does really great work. This is a fantastic, fantastic book. It's religious studies. People have been uh, ranting and raving about it. Raving, I should say. Raving about how great this book is. Um, And I've read, I haven't read the entire book, but I've read a lot of it. um, And it is fantastic. Really good book. Just the first chapter alone, um, which is history and development of the Sino-Muslim community, the roles of language, authority, and local locality, just is like is a brilliant, brilliant chapter. Um, so definitely check him out. Both of these are fantastic books. I'm going to include them in the description of this podcast. But if you want to learn more about this topic, these are the people that I would recommend you turn to, and these are the books that I would recommend. Anyways, I am going to end it here. Thank you for tuning in for this head-on history special. Hopefully, you found it interesting. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do so via social media 
at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, both on Instagram and on Twitter. Check out Instagram. It's a really cool behind the scenes if you want to see me teaching, if you want to see me at my speaking events or recording or all sorts of my craziness, definitely check me out on Instagram. If you want to hear more of my thoughts and kind of my political commentary, check out Twitter. It's also where I make my announcements uh, of various things that I'm up to. Anyways, thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.